So we've been uh, going along in our series in the book of Luke, and, and there's been a little bit of a theme over the last few chapters. It, it seems like each week that we are picking on the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time. I, mean, I think back to chapter 12 where Jesus gives this warning. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of being like them. Then chapter 15, they ridicule Jesus for who he is spending time with, and Jesus spends all of chapter 15 critiquing them, that I have come to fulfill God's heart, that he has come to seek and save the lost. Then chapter 16, it it portrays them as lovers of money, as people who just look to live to get more and more, more wealth, more authority. And in some ways, it makes sense why we might be focusing on them. These are people, we're told, that think that they are justified, that they are doing everything right, that God is going to save them because of all that they are doing with their lives, that they are living to God's perfect standard. And so Jesus holds them accountable to that standard, and they fall short. But it might be easy for us thousands of years later to be, to be reading about them here and make them out to be easy targets, Maybe even to think that we might be a little bit superior to them. Look at how wrong they get it. We could never possibly do that. See, one of the things about Jesus is he is an equal opportunist in deflating egos. And, and as we, we see these passages over again that talk about what it is that, that what it means to be a disciple of him, what he calls us to do with our lives, and, and the things that he calls us to do are incredibly demanding. They're, they're really difficult for us to do. Back in Luke 14, and, and you're forgiven if you weren't with us for that chapter or if you don't remember that chapter since we did it back in November, but back in, in Luke 14, we saw this incredible call from Jesus. This is verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and child and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my follower. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, we have these wonderful images, this this beautiful picture that's given to us of, of Jesus' love for us, that he has come to seek and save the lost like a shepherd who goes and rescues his, his lost sheep. Like this woman who, who looks all throughout the house to find her lost coin. Like this father who runs to his son, who is as good as dead to him. But then we have these other pictures of all that it entails to follow after him. That as he shows his, his adoration towards us, we show our adoration in return, valuing him over all else, over family, possessions, even our very lives. And yet these pictures are not mutually exclusive. We continue to see this idea of the difficulty, but the ease of following Jesus. And that's the idea that we see as well in, in chapter 17. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a little bit earlier than what was read for us uh, today, but, but in, this, in this passage, we see that same idea of this call that Jesus gives to those who are his disciples, those who are looking to follow him, and the things that he calls us and all of his disciples to do are are really hard. They're things that don't come naturally to us. It's not how we instinctually live. In fact, it feels almost impossible. And yet, in our desperation, where we might be tempted to just throw our hands up and quit there, in our need for hope, Jesus also reveals that we have all 
that we need to live for him. So let's get into the text. This is Luke 17, starting in verse 1. And what we'll see here is that this idea of following after Jesus, in following Jesus, the first thing that he calls us to do is to avoid tempting others. So what does it mean to be Jesus' disciple? What what does Jesus call us to do with our lives in obedience of following after him? Well, we avoid tempting others to sin, to turn away from God. This is Luke 17, verse 1. And he, Jesus, said to his disciples, so he tells us the audience, this is people looking to follow Jesus, he tells his disciples, temptation to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone, this this large stone, uh, was hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So this first thing that Jesus talks to his disciples about, what does it mean to follow him? Well, he, he, he tells that, that temptations are coming, that we are not immune to, tempt, uh, to being tempted to sin, but we also aren't immune to tempting others to sin. That by how we speak, how we act, the, the thoughts that we share, these behaviors that we exhibit, by, by how we are living our lives, we may do so that tempt others, that cause them to stumble, that might turn them to live in a way and to turn them their obedience away from Jesus. I, I love, I absolutely love the phrase that Jesus used here to talk about his followers. He calls them his little one. It, it, it's not... The, the point of the passage, but I think we can get there if we, if we focus on this. Think of the idea that you, as a follower of Jesus, he calls you his little one. It's this beautiful term of, of closeness, of intimacy, of, of knowing you personally, this, this picture of adoration. Think of the, the endearing names that you have for your child or your grandchild, or a niece, or a nephew. A, a name that you call them that shows just how close you are to them. That, that you could be a little bit playful with them, that you know them so well, that you love them so much, that you call them this name to show how special they are to you. Or maybe you have a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, or an uncle that has a special name, or a special phrase to, to refer to you that when they called you that, or when you opened up your birthday card and and that name was there for you, it it just showed how much they knew you, how much they cared about you, how much they loved you. And that's this picture that we have here, Jesus talking about his disciples, calling them his little ones. This phrase of just absolute closeness, of love, of care. But the crux of the warning here is that we are not Jesus' only little one. That yes, while Jesus loves you completely and uniquely and intimately, he loves all of his disciples in that way. He shows this care for every person who is following after him. That while all of us are called little ones, that all of his disciples are called that as well. And and so the the idea coming out of this is, do I live in a way that shows that same care, receiving care from Jesus? Do I live in a way that shows that same care to my fellow little ones? That am I united by this shared uh, grace and live out of that to continue to show love and affection to those that Jesus gives this incredibly close term to? 
Essentially, the idea is uh, that we, as we are called Jesus' little one, we are to live in such a way that we are showing that same care that Jesus shows us, that we are so delighted to receive this love from him, we show that same love to those that he cares about as well. The idea that it talks about here is to avoid causing these little ones to sin. That by how we live, that we might tempt others to turn away from him. This may come to our mind as, as maybe something uh, very graphic, like we don't want to tell someone to commit murder or give them a weapon or something like that, but, it, but it's actually more simple than that. It's the things that we laugh at, the things that we repost online, the things that we watch, the movies or the shows, and then we talk about, the things that we listen to, how we treat other people, the waitress, the barista, the CenturyLink representative who still has no answer for me as to why I don't have service five months later. But what, do, what did I just do there? I, I got a little chuckle and I bonded us in the devaluing of a human being. Uh, you're not wrong for laughing. In fact, I encourage it. Uh, but, but what I'm doing there is I, I'm I'm taking this person who is made in God's image and I'm disparaging them and I'm getting you all to join in with me. And maybe that has no impact on you. But maybe you hear that, especially from this stage, as that's okay. It's okay to treat people like that. It's okay to talk about people like that. And maybe, not even knowingly, it starts to slip out of you a little bit more. Well, that's what you saw Zach do. That's what you saw another Christian do, so it must be fine. And so our actions have more impact than, than just on our own lives. That we as people who are calling, called by Jesus to follow after him, how we are living has an impact on the brothers and sisters in Christ, the little ones, the fellow Christians who are around us. And we have an opportunity to live in a way that brings them closer to Jesus but we could also live in a way that causes them to go further away from him. Our actions, how we live, has bigger consequences than we might realize. Now, this doesn't mean that when we're around Christians, we're, we're supposed to lock ourselves off. We hide away from who we are. We, we, uh, we check our actual personality at the door, and we just have smiles. That's not what it is at all. But the, the next words in verse three, it says, pay attention to be aware that our, our lives, how we are living has an impact. And though we might feel comfortable doing something in the grace and freedom of God, we might feel like this thing has no impact on me. We are not the only little one. We are surrounded by other Christians and we might influence them into doing something that causes them to go further away from Jesus. Our actions have a greater impact than just on us. And how we care about our fellow Christians, how we care about the fellow little ones, ought to drive us to live in a way that has them in mind. The first thing Jesus calls us to is that in following Jesus, we avoid tempting others. Next thing that we see that in following Jesus, we avoid, or sorry, we constantly forgive others. So in following Jesus, we constantly forgive others. This is verse three. 
It says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So we saw in that first section that we are not immune from causing others to sin. And so we are to live in a way that, that avoids doing that, avoid causing them to sin. But people have the ability to sin against us, to inflict pain on us, to hurt us, to, to uh, cause us to, to uh, experience hurts that we never dreamed about, to damage us. And the response to that, Jesus tells us, is to forgive them constantly. There's a number that's given to us here, uh, the number seven. We are to forgive seven times. This isn't telling us the limit to which we are supposed to, as if we keep a people who wronged me list and they come up and, and ask him for forgiveness. They're like, you know, you've already used your seventh time, so now I get to hate you forever. That's not what it's talking about. Numbers have significance to the Israelites and, and seven is the number of, of completeness. And so it's not speaking to the quantity of times we forgive, but the quality of the forgiveness that we give. We forgive people completely, absolutely. It, it made me think of a phrase that my mom would use uh, for us kids when we were growing up. We, we, would, uh, we would make a mistake and then we'd say sorry and then sometime later, maybe even that same day, we'd make that same exact mistake and say, sorry again. And my mom would say to us, sorry means I won't do it again. Now, don't you dare hear me bad mouthing my mom, especially since she watches the recordings of these sermons on YouTube. Mom, I'm not saying you are wrong. Now let me turn my mic off and talk about how wrong my mom was. <laughs> no, that's, that's not it at all. Uh, the, the heart of what she's saying is, is very much so true, right? Us truly being a, apologetic, us saying that we're sorry, ought to drive us to not do that again. And yet we are people who make mistakes in patterns. We do the same wrong thing and the same wrong way over and over and over again. So what do we do as people who live that way? Well, we avoid causing others to sin. We live closer to Jesus. That was the first point. What do we do when people continue to do that against us? To do the same wrong things over and over again? We continue to forgive. We forgive constantly. So, so rather than the phrase, sorry means I won't do it again, from our perspective, forgiving someone means I won't ever bring this up again. Me forgiving you means that this thing is gone. That it's not something that I hold over you. Hey, you remember how you hurt me? Well, you owe me. Or talking about it behind someone's back to bring it up to other people. Forgiving someone means I don't bring this thing up again. There's a phrase that often gets thrown out, forgive and forget. And there, there's a lot of damage that, that comes from that phrase. How am I supposed to forget about this atrocity committed against me? This person needs to be held accountable. And that's not what I think the value of the phrase forgive and forget is. From our perspective, the ability to forget it means the ability to continue on with our lives, the ability to not be shackled to our past. And yet we cannot forget, we cannot move on, we cannot progress with our lives if we don't forgive. Forgiveness is the ability to start forgetting. Because otherwise, what are we doing? If we don't forgive, if we hold on to this hurt, then every time we see that person, it's the reminder of the pain that they caused. That's the guy who hurt me. 
and it all comes cascading back down on us. But it doesn't just stop there either. If we don't forgive, we find more and more people. It's no longer just, that's the guy who hurt me, but we find people who remind us of that person. Or we wonder, are they gonna be like that person who hurt us? And, and, we, and we lock ourselves off from people in general. Or we find more and more reminders of the pain that was caused to us. Yeah, we can't just forgive and forget. It's not a switch that we turn off. But forgiveness is the ability to not be haunted by our past, to not be shackled to despair. But I know forgiveness is costly. It is so hard to do. People have done things that are awful to us. It feels impossible to forgive some of the people who have hurt us. Hey, and we'll talk about why we do that a little bit more, but, but I, was, I just wanna bring us back to what's the point that we have here. In following Jesus, we constantly forgive others. In following Jesus. You see, if that first part of that phrase is true, if we are pursuing Jesus, if we are valuing him above all else, then that means that we are trusting and obeying in what he says to do. Yes, he calls us to forgive, but we also trust and obey that he is the God of justice, that he will wrong all rights, and we are trusting him in this hurt that I feel that he will make all things new again. Because what's the flip side of that? If I seek vengeance for this hurt that was caused for me, if I retreat completely, if I, if I try to deal with this hurt that I'm feeling on my own, then all of our focus goes to this hurt that we have. Or, or more broadly speaking, all of my focus goes to myself. That my eyes move from looking to Jesus and following after him to looking towards the only thing that matters is this pain that I feel. This is the most significant. So it's a move from following after Jesus to following after what we think is most important and it's that I was wronged, this thing needs to be addressed. And so we have this command here in following Jesus, we avoid, or so we constantly forgive others because without that forgiveness, well, we're no longer following Jesus. We're following ourselves as we try to wrestle away from Jesus, the throne of our lives. Last reason that I have of why we forgive, and it comes from a pastor I really like out in New York City named John Stark. He says, it's hard for me to forgive someone who has really offended me, especially when it happens more than once. I begin to doubt the sincerity of one who asks forgiveness for a second, a third, or a fourth time, but God does not keep count. Maybe the reason it seems hard for me to forgive others is I do not fully believe that I am a forgiven person. If I could fully accept the truth that I am forgiven and do not have to live in guilt or shame, I would really be free to offer forgiveness as well. See, the entire basis of our lives the ability to have that first part of that phrase be true in following Jesus, the ability to be his disciple is because we have been so forgiven. That we have gone against this God and yet he has so lavishly forgiven us. The entire basis of the lives that we have is that we have been forgiven. Yes, people have done horrible things to us. And I'm not saying that we, we'd forget about the consequences of that or that you just need to get over it. That's not what I'm saying whatsoever. The heart of this passage is for you. 
And the lack of forgiveness that we offer does even more damage to us than what anyone else can do as we turn away from that Jesus, as we forget the basis of the life that we have, which is rooted in forgiveness. And so the teaching that Jesus gives to us and following him, we constantly forgive others. And, and maybe we hear this and, and after my setup of, about the difficulty of what it means to follow Jesus, we're, we're hearing some of these things, we're, we're like, where's the difficulty? I, I don't have any problem uh, not causing people to sin. I, I think I do a pretty good job about that. Forgiving others, I'm the best at forgiving others. Uh, maybe none of this is really hitting us as where's the difficulty of the passage? And that's where we get into the third thing that Jesus shows us. That in following Jesus, we do the minimum when we obey him. In following Jesus, uh, when we are obeying him, when we are doing what God calls us to do, we are doing the absolute bare minimum of what's required of us. And, and we have this, this passage, this, uh, another parable that's given to us in verses seven through 11, and they're really hard to wrap our, our, uh, my mind around, just like the, the parable of the shrewd manager. Uh, in a very similar way, the, the master, the main person of this parable, he's not a good guy. And it's not saying to emulate him. And the, and the servant of this passage, he, we would say he is being mistreated and that would be true. But what Jesus is doing, he's, he's using a parable that would have been familiar. It would have been a situation that, that his audience would have heard and, and at least understand and using a bad example to teach something good. It's, it's a really fascinating way of teaching. Uh, but this is what verse seven says. Uh, again, Jesus is still talking to his disciples. He says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare my supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and then afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he commanded? All right, quick pause right here. This doesn't just mean, thank you for doing your job. Like, obviously, we should have appreciative bosses. That, that ought to be it. This is thinking as, as in, I'm now in your debt. You have done this good thing for me, so now I'm in your debt. It, it, it's a bigger piece than that. Uh, so does he thank his servant because of what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. And so it's, it's a really, really fascinating way of teaching, but essentially the point is that the servant does everything that he was supposed to do, all that was in his job description, but that does not mean that he has merited some special favor from the master or that he has in some way put the master in his debt. It kind of reminds me of, of chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. The older son is there talking to his father and he says, these long years I have served you, so where is my reward? but that's not the life that we have. When we are following Jesus, we do the minimum when we, obey, when we obey him. He is the God of the universe. He is in control of all things. The, the fact that we have a life to live in, in a direction towards him or in a direction towards ourselves, the very fact that we have a life is, is due to his grace, due to his love, due to his mercy. The thought that we could do, uh, the, we could follow what he calls us to do, we could do all kinds of things in Jesus' name, that that puts him in our debt. 
that that merits some sort of special favor from him, that, that oh, we look at this passage and, and, you know, I don't cause anyone to sin. Great, you weren't supposed to. You know, I, I, I've, I'm ready and regularly forgiving people. Excellent, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. What special favor do you think you're getting from doing what you were supposed to do? And we get in this passage and we see that, in, that God deserves all that we have. And in following Jesus, we're doing the minimum when we obey. Maybe there's a part of this section that deflates us a little bit. Or maybe you're like me and I apparently like to collect opportunities to be deflated because all of them hit me. In following Jesus, we avoid causing others to sin. And yet, I'm rarely willing to think of other people and how I speak and how I act, how I behave. I'm rarely willing to care for my fellow little ones in the way Jesus has cared for me. In following Jesus, we constantly forgive others. And yet, in just this past week alone, people came to mind while working on this passage that I hold grudges against, that I haven't been forgiving of. And following Jesus, we do the minimum when we obey. And yet that doesn't stop me from thinking that I've done something to earn special favor from God or that because of my feeble attempt of living and the way he's called me to, that 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 in some way makes him owe me. See, in all of this, we see so much of, of the difficulty of what God calls us to do. That this life that he calls us to and following him of being disciple is something that feels impossible. And yet this is where we move from the difficulty to the ease of following Jesus. That as we hear of all that God calls of us, we hear as well that he gives us everything we need to live for him. Because this is what Jesus is leading up to in this passage, that following Jesus requires faith. How, how do we live in this way that's so counterintuitive that we constantly fall short of doing it? How do we let go of things that are so important to us, so significant in our lives? How, how do we uh, rid ourselves of, of tricking ourselves into thinking that he owes us, that we have done this and now he, he needs to give us some sort of special favor? Well, it's so difficult for us to do. It's something that requires faith of us. And yet Jesus gives us everything that we need to follow him. That this faith that we need to live in this way, the object of it is so faithful and so thorough that we have all that we need to live for him. This is what we see in verses five and six. The apostles, Jesus' followers, said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. The apostles here seem to agree with us. They're hearing all that Jesus is calling uh, them to do with their lives and it sounds hard, it sounds so impossible. Give us more faith to live in this way. And don't we say the same thing? Jesus, to, to do what you're calling me to, give me, give me more faith. And yet even here, Jesus gives a little bit of correction that you don't need more, that you don't need a greater 
quantity of faith, but recognizing that the quality of faith, what it is resting in is where it gets its power, its significance, the ability to live in this way that he calls us to. That even a faith in the size of a mustard seed, the smallest amount possible, could do some incredible things. It could take a mulberry tree, which was famous for its tangled root system. People would come across them and see it growing there and and want it removed, but eventually just say, you know, let's just leave it here. It's too hard to, to rip it out. And yet faith could uproot it completely just by commanding it. And then it could be replanted in the seed. Imagine that, like taking a plant that lives on land and replanting it in the sea so now it's flourishing there. That, that's impossible. No, literally, it's biologically impossible for that to happen. But that's the point of this parable he gives. How do we live in this way he's calling us to? How do I have my mind focused on other people when every bit of me continues to turn inwards? How do I forgive people when I continue to carry so many hurts? How do I live knowing that, that, that nothing I do is going to earn special favor from God? It, it feels so impossible. And yet faith is what is able to accomplish the impossible. That by living in this way, we are recognizing who God is, that, that he can do all of this, that he can shape us and change us to be more like him that he and he alone is worthy of our affection. So we put our entire trust in him, that these lives that we have, they've been given uh, to us by him. And so we turn to him to see how we are to live. And this idea is explained to us a little bit more in the parable that was read for us earlier, the parable of the 10 lepers. Leprosy at the time consisted of a variety of skin conditions. It was kind of a catch-all term. And the Old Testament tells us that those with leprosy were considered outcasts. They had to be on the outside of society. They couldn't come near. Otherwise, they might make other people unclean. And the only way is if all all trace of their leprosy went away and then a priest declared them as healed, as clean, then they could re-enter in society. And so that's what Jesus does. At their distance, he heals them and he says, go to the priest. See, this is more than just a physical healing. This is their ability to re-enter into society. They they wouldn't have been close to friends or families for years. They wouldn't have been able to earn for themselves a living to work in any way that put them near other people. They, They wouldn't have been around people. They couldn't have gone to worship at the temple. Their lives were outcasts and Jesus in one moment takes that away. Go to the priest and he will let you re-enter society. But along the way, one of those former lepers stops. He doesn't go to the priest and he turns around. What are you doing, man? This is your chance. This is your ability to get your life back. Why are you turning around? You, You have to go to the priest, otherwise you won't be able to do this. Why does he turn around? because he recognizes what he has in Jesus. He sees that he has found something greater. He turns around, praises God, directs that at Jesus. And and this, this foreigner, this Samaritan, sees what has been done for him. And Jesus turns and he says, your faith has made you well. Nothing that you did, nothing uh, of who you are, you didn't earn this in any way. It is your faith that makes you well. And he receives not just physical healing, 
not just the prospect of being able to enter into society, but a spiritual healing as well. Why does he turn around? Because he sees that Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy of his faith, of his affection, of his entire life. Living as Luke 17 calls us to is is so hard to do, to avoid causing others to sin, to constantly forgive other people, to recognize that as we obey, we are doing the minimum of what's called of us. It feels impossible to live this way. And yet, we have everything that we need to do so. That we live following the directions that God gives to us. We, we put our entire trust into him. We, we recognize that he is active. He's not a God who used to work, but he is working now, working in our lives, working through our lives that he has invited us to know and be known by him and and faith is our means of relating to him, of, of being brought near to him, of being connected to him, of recognizing that he is the God of the universe who calls us and those around us his little ones. And so we trust in him for all things as he has given us all things. How do we live in the way that he has called us to? Only by faith. And we have a reminder in this passage as to how we can trust, how we can know that the quality of faith, the object of our faith is able to do all this. At the very start of this parable in verse 11, we have this little almost throwaway section and yet it's so vital. Verse 11 says, on the way to Jerusalem. When does Jesus do the story? Well, it's when he is on his way to Jerusalem. In this little phrase, we have a reminder as to why we have life at all. We have a little reminder as to why we trust in God for all things. We, we have a little reminder as to why God cares so much about us. We, we have a little reminder as to why we value him above all things. A little reminder as to why we direct our entire lives in following him rather than anything else. Why we give our everything for him. Because Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem where he gives his life for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful that you know who we are.